Welcome to the Semper Reformato Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Acts chapter 21, and reading from verse 27. You'll find that there's two CDs out in the foyer. The weekly catechism class that we did this week um, and the other place was um, on the subject of the virgin birth. So I brought one or two spares up, and if you want to take it with you, then please feel free to do so. Just making the point that Jesus was and always will be fully divine, but for our sake became fully human. You wonder how that happened. Well, going to discuss in the CD the process of conception. How was it that God brought about a virgin birth? Because that's an absolutely vital doctrine of Christianity. You cannot ignore that. Don't let anyone tell you that the virgin birth is a myth or that it is something in dispute It is absolutely essential. And it involves all three persons of the Trinity, for God ordained that it should happen. The Holy Spirit enacted it, and the Eternal Son became flesh for us. The Word became flesh. And we talk a little bit about two natures in one person. And again, that's important because there has been, over the course of history, a whole series of errors on the two natures of Christ, both fully human and fully divine, simultaneously. And next week, God willing, if I'm spared to come and talk to you again, I'll bring some CDs next week on historical Christological errors that will keep you awake at night for a few days. So that's the CD for the catechism class. Actually, a really important catechism lesson this week from Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism. But I've brought you another one as well, this wee colourful one. What does the Bible say about the Christian's appearance? Very practical subject. Um, we discuss at the end of it some practical issues and so that might be something that you want to take with you just for a little bit of um, light listening after you've done the eternal sonship and the uh, immaculate and miraculous incarnation of Christ conception and incarnation all right let's move on Acts chapter 21 and verse 27. Acts chapter 21 and verse 27. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him, that's Paul, in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people, and the law, and this place. 
and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen for they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and all the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing, some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying away with him. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art not thou that Egyptian which before these days madest an uproar and ledest out into the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers? But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. Amen. We're not going to use the word saying at the end because we're going to see what he said next week, or at least a little bit of it. Paul has been warned not to go to Jerusalem, hasn't he? Three times, no less, not just by his friends, but by God himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. Ah, But Paul knew best in his determination, in his uh, thrandness, he was determined to go to the city. He was determined to go to the temple. He was determined to deliver what he thought would be a reconciling gift to bring the Jews and the Gentiles together. And the whole plan has just simply fallen apart. Paul's been coaxed into a compromise. And it's a compromise that will bring him into disrepute. And it has the possibility of ruining his entire life's work. He's been recognised. He's been seized by the Jews. And that's where we are as this passage begins. There's not a whole lot of application in this passage. So what we're going to do this evening is just a wee bit of historical work. It's looking at the facts of the case. 
We're going to see a perjured capture. We're going to see Paul in protective custody. And finally, we'll see a very powerful communication indeed. So perjured capture. Paul is seized. He's not seized by the police. He's seized by a lying, baying lynch mob of frenzied anti-Christian zealots. Look at verse 27 where we began. When the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. Strangely enough, when I was studying for the ministry donkeys years ago, I, one of the modules in a course that I did was on journalism. I often wondered, why on earth would a pastor want to, want to learn about journalism? Actually, it came in quite useful. Uh, it certainly helps investigating um, things like this historical incidents. One of the things that we were taught in that course was that we were to ask questions constantly, very common questions. When we saw a story, we asked who, what, where, why, and when, and possibly how. So that's what we're going to do. Verse 27. The seven days were almost ended. Tells us when and where Paul was. He was in the temple. He had reached the end of the seven-day process of purification that those four Jewish men were going through. He was violently attacked by the Jews, the very people who would have professed to have the greatest love ever for the Jerusalem temple, and yet at the same time were quite prepared to defile its courts by setting upon another man who in their eyes would have been there to worship God just as they were. Who were they? They were the Jews of Asia. They were people probably from Ephesus. Remember that when Acts talks about Asia, it's talking about the Roman province of Asia, not the modern continent of Asia. So we're talking about the land around the town of Ephesus. And they recognized that he was with a man from Ephesus, a man called Trophimus. These were men from Ephesus, and they saw him in the temple. And so he wasn't attacked by the Jews who were dwelling in Jerusalem. These accusations at this stage, these first accusations were put by foreigners, Jews from another place. After all, Paul's been out of Jerusalem for many, many years. He may not even have been recognized at the temple had these men not traveled up to the city for the the feast and spotted him there. And of course, being from Ephesus, they would have remembered the success of the gospel in Ephesus. They would remember the number of converts. They would hate Paul just as much as they hated the Savior himself. Matthew Henry makes an interesting point here. He notes that the people who were so incensed against Paul were men who preferred the, the good life of the city of Ephesus 
to the more rigorous life in Jerusalem. And yet it was they who were fervent in defense of the temple's integrity. Matthew Henry points out that perhaps that's like some of us. People that we meet who are virulently against the gospel, who want to hear nothing of salvation, who decry and deplore all forms of evangelism and personal witness, who will, when you talk to them, claim to belong to some church or other, to be an ardent Anglican or Presbyterian or Methodist, who will have their name written in the role of a church that they never attend. And yet, when you speak to them about the Lord, about salvation, about the Lord Jesus Christ, they will parade their religious credentials. How did they do it? They stirred up all the people and they laid hands on him. The method they used is typical of this type of commotion. It's just basic rabble rising. They certainly didn't go along to the temple authorities and report the matter. They didn't go to the Romans because the secular courts would have certainly thrown their case out. They would have made little of their claims. Instead, they simply resorted to stirring up the crowds with rhetoric against Christ. And why? Because Paul is their enemy. I want you to look for a moment or two at the unreasonable, irrational charges that they have led against him that day before the mob. Look at verse 28. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. Look at what they're alleging here. They're alleging crimes against Israel. Paul, they say, has been guilty of turning Jews away from their customs and their rituals and their religions. They're saying he's not just wrong in what he believes, but worse still, he's daring to speak it out and he's daring to spread it around. So a recent report, I don't know how recent it is because it was copied and pasted, but I I saw a recent report that Belfast City Council have enacted some, or are in the process of enacting some kind of a bylaw whereby street preachers are going to have to be registered. You want to preach the gospel on the street, you're going to have to be registered in Belfast. And if that's true, that's a very great restriction on Christian liberty. They say it's to protect the the people from listening to rhetoric uh, that is hurtful. Well, what's hurtful? One of the saddest things, if it is true, is that it's being backed by some DUP people, I'm told. I hope it's a rumour and not the case. Paul here is being accused 
not just of believing something, but actually daring in the public to speak out what he has believed. And of course, Paul, as we know, loved the Jewish people. He longed for them to be saved. His heart's desire and prayer for Israel in Romans chapter 10 is that they would be saved. Crimes against the people. He's offending the people. And then crimes against the law in verse 28. Wonder what they were thinking of. Turn with me just for a few moments, a couple of pages over to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. And here's Paul. Here's Paul talking about the law. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and the truth of the law, or in the law. And then look down at verse 27. See what Paul concludes at the end of this chapter. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Jews would have seen Paul's use of the law, his understanding of the purpose of the law as a tutor to teach us and show us our own unrighteousness and thus to drive us in desperation to Christ who alone kept the law perfectly, they would have seen that as an attack on the law of God itself. Crimes against the law. Crimes against Israel. Crimes against the temple. They're accusing Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple. Now Paul, as a circumcised Jew, would be entitled to be there. But they had seen him in the streets of Jerusalem with Trophimus of Ephesus a man who was a Greek. They surmised that he would have brought this man into the temple courts, verse 29. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now that really is serious, isn't it? Temple is surrounded by a court of the Gentiles round the perimeter. And for Paul and for his friend Trophimus to walk in that area would be perfectly legal. But the next court was the court of the women. And that would be strictly forbidden to Gentiles. In fact, in those days, there were a series of notices written in various languages warning Gentiles to go no further under penalty of death and warning them that if they went further and were killed within the temple precincts, it would be their own fault. And strangely, the Romans actually allowed that. 
The Roman authorities seemed to respect Jewish tradition within the temple, allowing the Jews to carry out executions of Gentiles that had come into the forbidden temple courts. But Paul hadn't brought Trophimus into the forbidden areas. But when you're just slinging muck, some of it sticks. These charges are completely without foundation. They're completely false. But the mob soon develops into a lynching. And verse 30 tells us that all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith the doors were shut. The rat spread. Other Jews from the streets joined in. The city was filled with confusion. It wasn't long before crowds were gathering and it came to the notice of the Roman authorities. No one at that point seems to know precisely what's happening, but they're willing to make a commotion. They're willing to join in. This man, Paul, has been dragged out of the temple, perhaps on the pretext of not wanting to sully the holy place with his, with his blood, with the blood of his death. And the doors of the temple are shut. And the beating begins. And if precedent is to be followed, it will be a beating to the death. Except at that point, we see protective custody coming into play. The Romans stepped in. Make no mistake, if they hadn't, Paul was a dead man. He would have been viciously beaten to a pulp by his own countrymen. And so in verse 31, it says, As they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. That's no exaggeration. In the northwest corner of the temple court, or the outer court of the temple, was a set of steps, two flights, leading up into a tower. It's the Tower of Antonia. It's the home of a permanent garrison of Roman troops. And of course, because Jewish feasts were a flashpoint, a flashpoint for nationalist extremists, the garrison would have been strengthened at that time. Let's see three things about this arrest. Let's see the the restraint and the reports that were made afterwards and the request that Paul made. So we see the restraint. So the commander of the local garrison, now concerned that a riot's taking place under his watch, gathers his forces and marches into the city. According to F.F. Bruce, there's over 200 of them at least. There has to be. Because it says in the scriptures here uh, that he took, verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and centurions. Now a centurion is a commander of a hundred men. And there must have been at least two of them because they're plural. So there must have been 200 men, at least. You see, sedition must be stopped immediately. When they arrive at the scene, the riot calms. And you can be sure that those 200 men 
Roman soldiers, every one of them gladiators. You can be absolutely sure they didn't stand around. Do you remember that news that came out of London about a month ago? It was all over the scandal, scandalous headlines. When some environmental protesters went and sat on the M25 and the police very kindly well you see you, you can't allow them to get hit by traffic in their protest so the police very kindly stepped out and stopped the traffic so they could sit on the road and wasn't there footage of a nice policewoman going out to one of the protesters and asking them were they alright is there anything you need? And all the traffic backed up for miles and miles and miles. People trying to get to hospital appointments. People trying to get to work. And here's this police officer asking this protester, is there anything I can get? Would you like a wee glass of water? The Roman army wasn't like that. The Roman army went in and beat them off with great violence as we'll find later on their arrival you can be sure they didn't hang around Paul for example was handcuffed and arrested verse 32 it says he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down onto them and when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers they left beating of Paul you can be sure they did verse 33 then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done and some cried one thing and some another among the multitude and when he could not know the certainty of the tumult he commanded him to be carried into the castle at this stage there is so much confusion that the charges against Paul and the reasons for the riot are completely incoherent a bit like the arguments of insulate Britain themselves so there's a restraint. And of course, when a report, when an arrest is made, there has to be a report written. And we find two of them. There's two accounts of this arrest. Well, there's three, actually, the one that we're reading now. But then there's one written by the soldier, by the Roman captain, who affected the arrest. It's in Acts 23 and verse 27 and to verse 28. And here's the report of the captain, a man called Lysias. It says, This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army. That shows you what he was doing. And rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. There's a slight exaggeration there on Lysias's part. And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council. In chapter 24, the Jews hire a lawyer. We'll talk about him in a few weeks, Tertullus. And Tertullus, speaking before the Roman governor, described the scene, and he named the Roman commander in chapter 24 and verse 6 and verse, into verse 8, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, this is Paul he's talking about, whom we took and would have judged according to our laws. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands. 
So the Roman commander called it a rescue. The Jews complained about the violence. So presumably when the Romans arrested Paul, they'd probably done quite a bit of damage among the Jews as well. Yet despite this, as Paul is taken away out of the temple court, they're still baying for blood. There's still confusion. There's still anger. The people acting so violently that Paul has to be actually lifted shoulder high and carried by the soldiers to get him out of the reach of the mob who follow behind crying, kill him, kill him. Verse 35 and verse 36. The restraint and the reports and the request soldiers carrying Paul have reached the steps up into the palace and Paul asks for permission to speak his words are unexpected up till now he hasn't been allowed to speak these events all seem to happen in a very short space of time one minute he's standing with four Jewish Christians in the temple and the next he's being severely beaten And the next minute he's being carried, bodily handcuffed, up the steps to the local prison. And when they get to the steps, he finally manages to gasp for breath and to speak to his captors or his rescuers. And his words surprise the captain because to his surprise, he speaks to him in Greek. How unusual is that? Captain is shocked this man is not an uneducated savage this man is speaking in a cultured Greek language verse 37 and as Paul was to be led into the captain he said unto the chief captain may I speak unto thee who said canst thou speak Greek Art not thou that Egyptian which before these days made us an uproar and led us out into the wilderness, four thousand men that were murderers? He thought Paul was someone else. In AD 54, there had been an insurrection at Jerusalem during a feast, a time of heightened nationalist fervor. An Egyptian had gathered up a large band of vagabonds and thieves and beggars and murderers and criminals and with his powerful rhetorical ability he had persuaded them, making outrageous claims, he had persuaded them to rebel against the Romans. They began a terrorist campaign in the city. Many of them were the so-called knife men. They moved among crowds at the feast and stabbed Romans and Gentiles until the Roman army moved in with great ferocity. And many of those insurgents were killed and some escaped out into the desert. The Romans chased after them. They dispersed them with very great violence. The account is found in the, in the records of Josephus. But the Egyptian escaped. And the Roman captain, in verse 38, thought that was Paul. Are you not that Egyptian? Verse 39, Paul said, No, 
I'm a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. So Paul begs leave to speak very humbly, first establishing his credentials as a Jew, a man of respectable birth from a prominent city. I wonder when he spoke of no mean city, was he referring to Tarsus or was he hinting at his Roman citizenship, which he would admit to slightly later. Let's look at Paul's boldness again. We see a powerful communication in verse 40. And when he had given him license, Paul stood in the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. He's been beaten again. Many times is that. He's been arrested. He's about to go to prison. And yet with great boldness, he stands on the steps of the prison and he looks at the people who have beaten him and he speaks unto them. The AV here says he spoke to them in the Hebrew tongue. The Greek says, Tehebredai dialecto legon. Hebrew dialect. Uh, it may well be that he spoke to him and them in the, the local dialect, which is a form of Arabic, Aramaic rather. Whatever, doesn't matter. Whether he used formal Hebrew or the common language of the people, he silenced them. It says here that there was made a great silence, a great hush occurred across this mad crowd. Paul gestured for silence. The baying mob stopped. The screaming stopped. And the ranting ceased. And the very power of God flowed through Paul as he began on those steps to witness for Christ. Kent Hughes in the Church of Fire reasons that it is amazing that Paul did this. Because at this point he will have been terribly beaten. Hughes quotes a German theologian who argued that this part of the story can't be true because no man would be capable of such a thing. Yet for a man with a heart like Paul's, says Hughes, depending as he did upon the Lord, such a thing is certainly attainable. So Hughes asks, what was it that caused the bleeding and broken apostle to ask for permission to speak? It was the desire even to be cursed for their sake that they might know Christ. Romans chapter 9 and verse 2, Paul expresses this well. He says there, it's a kind of a prayer, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, 
my kinsmen according to the faith, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. What was happening as Paul stood in that steps? When Paul looked through his bruised, blackened eyes and his bloody face, and he saw that great crowd of people, the people that he looked upon were not his enemies, they were sinners, covenant breakers, who had all the privileges of a Jewish upbringing and who needed Christ. And he opened his mouth and he spoke to them in their own tongue. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.